I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Stephen Brooke, a prolific wine writer, contributing editor at Decanter Magazine, and the author of The Complete Bordeaux. Hello, sir. How are you? Good to be here. So you weren't originally in wine writing, per se? Not at all. I really started my professional career in publishing. And uh, when I did start to write, I was writing anthologies and travel books before I got into wine. What was your family upbringing like? Very sort of uh, middle class of Central European style bourgeoisie in London. A lot of emphasis placed on good education. And fortunately, I was quite good at that. So I progressed through the ranks of schooling and the university. And your parents had fled continental Europe in the late 30s. That's right, in the late 30s, yes. You were the first generation to grow up in London. Indeed. Part of London where I lived and the schools which I attended were full of people like me. So it was only when I got to places like Cambridge University that things were rather different, and I had to mix with people from totally different backgrounds. You've actually written books that have addressed this about class in Britain and also the Jewish experience in absolutely, Britain. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yeah. What did you find uh, exploring that? Because that's almost kind of like exploring you. Well, it's very complex because there isn't just one Jewish society in Britain. There, there are layers of them. There were people who have been around since the 17th century, the Sephardim, who are still a very prosperous community, very integrated community. Then you have the uh, people who came over in the early 19th century, banking families, again, very well established, but tend to be Ashkenazim rather than Sephardim. And then you have the refugees coming in from Poland, from Russia at the end of the 19th century. And then, of course, as in the case of my background, the refugees from Nazi Germany. So there are all these different layers, and they sort of coexist, but they're also fairly separate as well. They go to different synagogues and have different social gathering grounds. If you go to school in Cambridge, you're, you've kind of made it in British society, right? In a sense, yes. Yeah, but I confess I always felt slightly different, even though I was by no means isolated. Um, and I had friends from all kinds of backgrounds, whether it was working class backgrounds, which I wasn't from, or from um, you know, fairly upper class backgrounds, people who'd been to Eton and Winchester and all the top schools, and some of those people are still my friends. So it wasn't a major problem, but I, I, I always felt I was slightly on the edges, on the fringes. But that's not a bad thing to be. 
think it gives you perspective as a writer. Yeah, I think that's true. Being able to be a little bit detached from yes. a scene yes. allows you to analyze it yeah. better. Because I think you're a very thoughtful writer when you think through both processes and problems in a region. Try and think hard before I put pen to paper. One of the things that I really like about your approach is that you don't seem to, in my mind as a reader, come to those problems or approaches with a set view of what's better already. You interview people and then you often place quotes that are disagree with each other next to each other in the text and say, well, this person thinks this and this other famous person thinks the opposite. And I'd rather explore. And as you say, that involves talking to people, which I love doing, and then transferring what they're saying, well, first of all, into my head, and then finally onto, onto paper, but try and build up some of the complexity of some of the subjects that I'm dealing with, rather than provide pat answers. Because I think of you as someone who gets good quotes, at least the ones that end up in your book. Not everyone gets those quotes. Sometimes people ask questions, and they get kind of rote answers. And you seem to get enlightening quotes. So I'm always sort of curious as, you know, because that's something, that's my metier too, right? To yeah, try to sure. get interesting yes. answers to questions. <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, what does this guy do? Does he get him drunk first? or what is Clearly, I recognize a, a good anecdote or a good line when I hear one and read one and I'll use it. But it's not that I'm self-consciously going for, you know, that exciting anecdote. If it drops into my lap, I'll, I notice it's there. And as I say, I'll exploit it. And I guess at some level, probably writing's not that hard for you. No, no. I, except for a lot of people, I have a friend who's a very well-known biographer, and from him, he's sweating blood every day. It's really hard for him to, to do that. The results are stupendous, so it's worth it. But I don't have that hesitancy, although maybe I should. Maybe I'd write better books if I you know, was a little more thoughtful. And, but um, it does come fairly easily to me, I have to say. What were the early publishing days like for you? What were you up to? They were great. I, I was very lucky. I worked for a publisher before I went to university, which gave me a sort of opening. Then as soon as I graduated, I could go back to that company, and then I went to another company. But then I moved to the United States for sort of romantic reasons. I got married there. I worked for a well-known publisher, like Little Brown, Atlantic Monthly Press, and then for a small but very distinguished publisher called David Godin. And then when I moved back to England a few years later, I went to work for an academic publisher, which for me was absolutely bliss. I was, I was back in that university milieu, which I'd always enjoyed, and I was asking important people to write books for me or whether I could buy the UK rights for their books. That, you know, when you're in your 20s, that's pretty exciting. So uh, I really I relish that, and I, I still miss it. I still miss it. It sounds like you always wanted to be part of the literary world. Yes, yes. Oh, most definitely, yeah. There was never an aspiration to be a rock star or something like that. Uh, uh, I don't think I've been terribly good at it. <laughs> well, it's never stopped some people. <laughs> That's very true, yeah. <laughs> so what was the segue from publishing to wine? It was a transitional period when I kept losing my job <laughs> as a publisher. I'm not, I'm not a terribly good sort of team. I don't work well in, in, in structures like offices. And so I'm easily outmaneuvered, and it happened a couple of times. With the politics. With the politics, and I didn't realize that I was in danger of losing my job, and I would be called into the office and told that, you know, <clears throat> pack your bags. And, well, okay, I lived with it, but I was also starting to, to write to do some journalism, to do book reviewing, and then I did a lot of that, and one of the magazines I was writing for at the time, the New Statesman asked me to write some stuff about food and wine, which I did, even though I didn't know anything about it, except that I liked the product. And it gradually turned into a column. 
So in the, I can't remember the dates exactly, but I would say sort of 83, 84, I already had a wine column. And it, it just developed and evolved over the years. And I started, my first wine book was published in 1987. And again, one thing led to another. So what was the situation for wine and food writing in England in the 80s? I would say certainly in the 70s, wine writing was dominated by the wine trade. Because they had the experience. They'd traveled everywhere. They knew everybody. Um, for an independent wine writer with no private income, traveling around Europe or Australia was, it was enormously expensive and difficult. Um, you needed introductions, which the trade didn't need because they already had them. And there were promotional organizations, but they weren't going to fly to Australia just you know, on spec. So it, it was a time when a whole bunch of us who were actually independent of the wine trade were moving into wine writing. Tim Atkin, uh, Anthony Rose, consumer magazines started to turn up. I mean, the magazine I write for now, Decanter, was then in its infancy um, because there was a market out there for people who wanted to, to know more and read results of tastings and get news about certain regions or whatever. Um, so there was a greater thirst, forgive the pun, for information about wine, food, uh, cars. There was Witch Magazine, which was promoted by the Consumer Association, which did independent reports on things like washing machines. There was a consumer society. In the early 80s, people very, or even earlier, people were anxious to know about the products they were finally able to afford after some decades of relative austerity after the war. Oh, I see. So basically what was happening was that prosperity was finding the middle class after a long period of time. Where yes, yes. The, the conservatives, I forget which year it was, which election it was, maybe it was 1959, it was Harold Macmillan and the, his slogan was, you've never had it so good, which sounds well, a bit supercilious, but it was actually true. And it meant that people who perhaps may have had quite good jobs, they may have been teachers, whatever, um, civil servants, but would never have been able to afford to drink wine on anything other than a very occasional basis, uh, birthdays, Christmas, could suddenly at least drink it on a weekly basis. So there was greater prosperity, and with that came greater curiosity about what it was that they were interested in. When I think about the wine writing of the previous generation, sometimes it really revolved around great dinners. Like oh, people yeah. would talk yes. about their dinner menu, essentially. Well, it was connoisseurship. So people like George Saintsbury, uh, Morris Healy wrote a book called Stay Me With Flagons, wonderfully old title, old-fashioned title. Um, they, they, they were friends who got together. Um, though some of those clubs still exist. I think there's a Saintsbury club somewhere in London. I've never been to it. But people often with quite good incomes and good sellers, they'd get together and they'd share bottles and they'd make their notes about it. And Professor Sainsbury would publish his notes of his seller book. And, but it was very much a, a tiny university or club-oriented milieu, uh, which excluded 99.9% you know, .9 of the population. And that, that was, was starting to disappear. And at the same time, as you already said, you were a little bit of an outsider, and at the same time, all of these people were interested in buying wine more often. And so it gave someone like yourself an opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Because in that close-knit world, it may not have been something that you ended up doing. But, however, my first book on wine was about 
sweet wines, which is probably the least popular segment of, of, of the range of wines that you could expect to be enthusiastic about. So I wasn't doing myself any favors by, uh, by writing that book, but, uh, but, but nevertheless, it, it, it was well received. And, um, that was liquid gold, but liquid it didn't gold. turn into actual gold for yeah. you. Okay. <laughs> I wish. That's <laughs> what you're implying. <laughs> and so uh, you had been writing for Vogue. Yes. And how did that parlay into liquid gold? Like, what happened there? Because I'd been a travel writer before as a wine writer. I was also writing for Vogue on travel before I was writing for them on, on wine. But, you know, these things sort of allied into, into each other. It wasn't that there was a particular moment when I changed from doing one thing to doing another. Why did you decide to do that book? Because it was a niche in the market. Um, a tiny, tiny niche. But nevertheless, nobody, to the best of my knowledge, had written an entire book about it. Uh, there were books on port and on Madeira, but there weren't books about the whole worldwide production of, of sweet wines. So I was writing about wines from South Africa, from Australia, California, as well as the classics of you know, Tokai or um, Sauterne or the great wines of the Loire. So... I was keen to explore that world of wine, and I, I, I did so at considerable expense, I must say. I wasn't there, but for me, when I look at the wine writing of the 80s, especially coming from England, the really interesting thing is that it was the unique period of time where there were these new world wine regions coming online to a significant commercial degree, where you could, for basically the first time, really, compare the new world version to the classical benchmark side by side, and because I think if you'd written that book in the 60s, that would have been harder to do. Yeah, I think that's true. But it was also a period when people of you know, stupendous talent were writing about wine, which really hadn't been the case before. I mean, jottings from a cellar book are all very well, and you can make the occasional sort of erudite witticism. But people such as Hugh Johnson and uh, Jancis Robinson were extremely talented, intelligent, knowledgeable people. And they were writing well, not only about wine, but primarily about wine. And... As far as I know, that really hadn't happened before. Jancis talked a lot about that in her book, about how it wasn't really a career path when she started doing it. But you developed a relationship with her and, and with Oz Clark, and I think those have been significant relationships in your own world, right? Yes, we're, we're a fraternity. We, we see each other all the time. Often when we're tasting together, either in, in groups or just because we're attending the same tasting. We've been around for a long time. We know each other's likes and dislikes, so we get on pretty well. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an intimate friend of, of any of them, but think of them as sort of this brotherhood, sisterhood um, of you know, shared interests and I think a you know, shared level of curiosity as well. Because you've worked on editions of books with you and with Oz. Yes, primarily Hugh, because I edited two editions of his Wine Companion, which is not his world-famous pocket guide, but uh, his encyclopedia, which is a fairly substantial book. And uh, he asked me if I would revise it about, oh, I'm not sure what it was now, 10, 12 years ago, and I did that edition. I did the following edition, and then it, alas, came to an end. But for me, that was a fabulous opportunity because it allowed me to whiz off to places I'd never been to before, such as Chile, Croatia or Greece, in order to research stuff for the book. So for me, it was a great opportunity as well. I can imagine that someone who started with an early interest in travel writing, it, it is very appealing to go to these new regions. Oh, I love it. Oh, no, I, I, I adore traveling. And I, the first time I went to Argentina, I wasn't expecting very much. But like everybody else who's been to Buenos Aires, you know, it was a mind-blowing place. And then you go out to Mendoza and 
see the vineyards right below the Andes. You've got condors flying overhead. Uh, oh, it's, it's fantastic. And it's a real privilege to be able to fly to these places and visit them sometimes, but not always at uh, other people's expense as well. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you mentioned that the generation right prior to yours had often specialized in a thing. The guy who wrote about Burgundy wrote about Burgundy. But you sort of really broke that mold in your own career because when I think about what Stephen Brooke has done, you've written about California, you've written about Germany, you've written about Bordeaux a few times. You've done a, a wide range. That's not a normal track. Following my enthusiasms and... I knew German wines very well. I was very keen on them, especially Rieslings. Not the only person to be committed to Rieslings. But I was just aware that there hadn't been a serious book on German wine for many years. So I put my hand up and said, you know, will somebody let me write it? And luckily, the answer was yes, in terms of the Faber wine series at that time. No longer exists. So I was able to, to write their book. And simply a book I wrote just a couple of years ago on Austrian wines, a very similar sort of background, uh, a gap in the market. There were some books about 10 years ago on Austrian wines, long out of print. There's been a huge revival of interest in, in the wines. And I was able to provide a lot of information because I've been going there for 40 years. Not necessarily to research wine, but I knew Austria very well. So it's so part of the, the culture. There are vineyards, I think it's something like uh, nearly 2,000 acres of vineyards within the city limits of, of Vienna. And it's not an enormous city. And on a summer evening, a large proportion of the uh, population goes out to wine taverns, they're called Heurigen, in the wine villages. There are dozens and dozens of them. Some of them are a bit commercial, but they're, they're supposed to only pour wines produced at that estate and only to serve food that is prepared from their own products, so cheeses and hams and so on and so forth. And so they were around and they were regulated in the 18th century by Emperor Joseph II. So it's not something that's new. It's embedded in Viennese life. and Everybody goes to the Eirigen and you drink copious quantities of wine in mugs, not realizing their, their strength. So again, it's something that people don't think twice about. It's just, it's there. And it's a source of pleasure. It's, a so it's where you go to meet your friends. There'll be a band, perhaps, playing some traditional music in the background, not in every place. But uh, there's this Viennese thing about Gemütlichkeit of, uh, I don't know how you translate it, of almost like you know, cuddliness, a togetherness. So it can be slightly bogus. But part of it is, is, is genuine. People like to get together. They meet their friends, gossip, eat and drink. It's a very important part of the culture. I think that's a classic Stephen Brook retelling of something because you're, you're saying, well, this is really cool. There's an aspect of it that's a slightly phony because <laughs> that, that, that's how you write books too. You're like, this is, there's, this, there's the history of it. This is what's happening. It's quite the, it's quite the event, but you know, it's a little... Uh... Well, you don't want the wool pulls over your eyes all the time. I think you have to try and take a little bit of distance. But in terms of the wine scene in, in Austria, what did you see? Well, there's been a, a renaissance in red wines. So now they're making extremely good red wines. They've made mistakes with over-oaking, with planting of international varieties. Now they've gone back to their traditional varieties, in particular Blaufränkisch, which I think is a very, very good grape variety. Whether it's a noble one, is a, you can debate. That's been a, a major change. And of course, as everywhere, there's a generational change. And some of the old people have, have retired. But you know, some of the old people made pretty good wines too. I remember Brundelmeier, who was one of the most respected wines, wine makers in, uh, in Austria gave me a, 
at a dinner, a bottle, I think it was 1971 or 1973, Grunefeld-Liener, and uh, it was just terrific. He hadn't made it. It was his father who'd made it. He'd made it at a time when the farming was very different, when the yields would have been twice as high. as, And, and still the wine survived and came through. And I think you wrote a few books for the Faber series. I did. I wrote one on Sauterne. I wrote one on Germany. And there was another one. Wines of California, I think, right? Wines of California, absolutely right, yes. And so what was it like working with that publisher before the Mitchell Beasley uh, purchase? Oh, it was was terrific. It was terrific. It was run by one man who was a QC, which in British terms means a leading lawyer. He was actually a judge, a high court judge, uh, and probably the world's authority on... Sherry, at least in the English-speaking world. That's Julian Jeffs? Julian Jeffs, yes. And he was, he was my editor, so I would propose ideas to him, and he'd say yes or no. And fortunately, it was usually yes. And then, of course, he was my editor in the sense that I would deliver my manuscript to him, typescript in those days. He would come back to me with his comments, and eventually, you know, a year later, it would appear in print, which was a very good working relationship for the most part, yes. Before you were selecting authors and editions, now you're being edited. So were there periods of time when you were being edited that did someone say something to you about writing or that affected your approach to writing? Oh, yes. I mean, my, my first travel book, which was called New York Days, New York Nights, came out in, I think, 1983. I had an editor, still a, a friend all these years later, and uh, she gave me quite a hammering on some of the things that I'd, I'd written, um, the style or the approach or things that I thought were funny and she didn't. And I find that enormously valuable. I've been an editor in my earlier life. In, in publishing, I was a copy editor. I, I worked with people like Norman Mailer on his books. I was in weekly contact with him and arguing about certain things. So I knew what the editing process was like. And I, I knew that I was doing it because I, I thought I could make it better. I'm not saying you improve on somebody like Norman Mailer, but with lesser authors, you, you say, yes, you know, this is repetitious, you've said that before. So I never took it amiss when my own editors came back to me and said, look, this really doesn't work. Can you reshape this chapter and so on? Uh, that, that's just, you know, if you get all huffy about it, you're wasting your time. Because I can imagine editing Norman Mailer might have a threat of physical violence attached to it. You know, like, well, let's box about it. Well, in know? those days, I, I was in Boston, he was in New York. But I must say, he was extremely civilized. Oh, really? The, the gra- yeah, the grander the writers you're working with, the more amenable they tend to be, because they're professionals. Yeah, they said, you're talking rubbish, I'm not going to do what you say. That, that's fine, that's their right. But um, they weren't nasty or patronizing at all. So you're one of the rare people I could really look to and say, like, how have wine regions comparatively changed? There's very few people that could answer that question. You know, Jancis would come to mind. But most people haven't seen of diversity of wine regions with any real depth where they've really talked to a lot of producers over a 20, 30 year period as you have, and you've been in multiple continents to do it. So it's, it's actually very interesting. So when you think about that, when you say, well, this is how California's chains relative to Austria, to Germany, to Bordeaux, I mean, what are some things that sort of stand out for you as generalities? Well, I can give a couple of examples. I remember in, in Austria, when I was there in the late seventies, None of the red wines went through malolactic fermentation because the, uh, the wine college close to Neuburg disapproved of, of it as a winemaking technique, so, which meant that the red wines were pretty awful. They had hard tannins, often quite, quite green. Of course, that disappeared. Ten years later, everything went through malolactic uh, fermentation. In Burgundy, when I first went to Burgundy, in, again, the mid, mid-'80s, 
Use of herbicides, pesticides is almost universal, even among quality conscious growers. And now that was completely transformed. I mean, the vineyards are plowed, a huge number of either organic or biodynamic vineyards, which didn't exist in those days. So there have been huge developments. And I would say nearly all of them are, are positive. In Germany, the first visits to Germany, everybody was showing me their toys, you know, centrifuges, you know, cleaning the must. And that era is, is gone. People are going to a more, a more natural style of winemaking, which is great because it, it, it means there's less standardization of flavors, of structures, and so on. So all these developments are positive. And what did you see as issues in the regions when you went? Because you're a person who kind of thinks about what's on the table for approaches and potential pitfalls in a region. So when you wrote Wines of Germany, what was on your mind at that time? Well, I was conscious of issues such as yield. 1982 vintage in Germany, I think the average yield was something like 240 hectoliters per hectare, where it's, say, the maximum yield in Sauterne is 30, just an example. The Germans don't do that anymore. They still have pretty high yields, but, but not like that. That was just ridiculous. So all that has, has changed. And development of red wines. Red wines were very thin, I'd have to say. There were some, some Pinot Noirs. Uh, there were grapes like Dornfelder, which gave fairly simple, juicy red wines, inoffensive wines. And now, especially in southern Germany, there's some very serious Pinot Noir. And then other varieties such as Lemberger, which is the same as Austrian Blau Frankish, being produced to a, a high standard. So that, that is all new, but that really wasn't going on in, in the 80s. And a lot of times I feel like you've approached a region right when the market for that region was about to change. I feel like you did that in California. I feel like it went through a real growth period after the book, not not necessarily saying because of the book. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> but then you wrote a book called Medoc and Grave, which was a Bordeaux book, and that came out in 06. And of course, when the 05 vintage got released, prices went up further, and it was kind of a change time for the region. So have you noticed periods of time where you've been in a region, and then after publishing the book, it's changed in the market? I, f I find that really hard to, to answer. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because a lot of times you don't really talk about the market in your books. Some authors do. Some authors will say, you know, this is the 90, it's $400. This is the 89, it's $300, so it's good value. You know, you, that's not your approach you tend to take. M more so in my articles. That's the place, as far as I'm concerned, to rant about prices or greed. Um, in a book, it probably doesn't have any place. It, except there's one exception, which was a book I wrote called Bordeaux, People, Power, and Politics, in which I deliberately went out to examine the structure of the Bordeaux wine trade, which is unique to this day in the world, in that there's a division between the producers, chateaus, and the merchants who actually sell the wine. And because of that, there are all kinds of consequences in the way that the wines are marketed and sold and hyped, and the whole emprimeur system, of which I've always been a, a severe critic. And this book allowed me to explore those issues, also technical issues about you know, reverse osmosis and concentration and so on, fairly technical stuff, but very important at that time, less so now as a result of global warming. So that was a more analytical book. And I enjoyed that hugely, even though it made me very unpopular, I think, in certain circles in, in Bordeaux, because I was sort of lifting the lid. It wasn't nothing scandalous there. It wasn't expose, but it was showing how this 
very strange world worked. And I think that made an impression on quite a lot of people and a fairly negative impression on some of the Bordeaux producers. I mean, you say it may have made you unpopular in certain circles, and I, I imagine that certain producers weren't always happy. But I, I feel like that's also the book that really made your reputation in other circles. Like, that's probably the book that most people would associate you with if I stopped uh, somebody on the street and asked. Well, a lot of people say it's, it's the best book I've done, and I think that's probably true, because it was a fairly brave book to do. And... People hadn't really done that kind of book before. I mean, Nicholas Faith had written a very good book on the, the Bordeaux system, and before him, Edmund Penning Russell, but he was more from an insider point of view. But, but this was more of a sort of, not, not crusading, but it was an outsider coming in, a bull in a china shop, and saying, look, look what's going on here. So uh, I still think I did a pretty good job. Coming out of... Um working as a sommelier in the late 90s in the States, when I read that book, because I remember reading it when it came out, in fact, I still have it, the way I read it, and I don't know if this is the way you intended it, but the way I read it was a subtext of, see how all these people are catering to Parker's taste, and this is how they're doing it, and this is a little problematic. Yes, but I mean, it's a bit like flogging a dead horse, isn't it, talking about Parkerization, but it was equally true in California as it was in, in Bordeaux. But it, it was a real thing. I mean, he was entitled to his taste. Can't argue against that. But it was obvious that if you wanted your wine to succeed commercially, en primeur, or you know, in the screaming eagle market, it helped to fashion your wine in a certain way that was going to please the world's most powerful wine critic. Um, it's not rocket science. And that's what happened. And there were a lot of overblown wines, in, uh, certainly in California, and to some extent in Bordeaux as well. I mean, everybody knows the ripeness levels have gone up, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But it's extremely rare for one person, a wine critic, to have such an influence on the style of wines worldwide. I mean, look what happened in Australia, where all kinds of brands were developed that no Australians had ever heard of. They were purely for export, primarily to the American market. They were, the, they were Parker's wines. They were his favorites. And uh, that's an extraordinary phenomenon. And I hope we don't see anybody in the future with that kind of power. Because it must have been very evident to you writing books on Bordeaux, kind of witnessing this as a, a guy who's careening through some of the same corridors at the same time. Well, I mean, the financial implications were enormous. Um, I remember there was one estate uh, in, in the graph that Parker never liked. And I have to say, at that time, they weren't making particularly good wines. They're much better now. And they very proudly put out a, a uh, sent out a, a fax or whatever with their Parker score, which was something like 78. <laughs> and they did it with pride because they were saying, we're, we're not going to knuckle under to this trend for overripe, overpowerful wines. We're going to stick to our guns and produce what we think are elegant wines. So all, all this was going on. It was fun to, uh, to report on it. But it, it was a real, a real issue in financial terms because you could be hammered by having a bad vintage. You could be hammered by having a bad score. And okay, if you're a big insurance company, you probably don't care greatly. But if you're a relatively small family property in Saint-Emilion, uh, there was a risk that you could go under. And of course, some of them did and have sold their properties and so on. I'm not saying Parker was responsible for that. But if expectations of the consumers are raised in a certain way and you don't meet those expectations, you're asking for trouble. 
So you you did write the book Medoc and Grave in 2006. It came out, and in the introduction of that book, you know, you expressed a little bit of frustration that things weren't always clear, that the Bordeaux producers didn't always understand where the wines went in terms of who the end consumer was, what the end consumer's interests were, but also their interactions with the press, of which you were one. There was a great access, and it was it was a chummy, but sometimes a little bit of a an ensconced world of its own. There are two issues there. Uh, one is distribution of the wines. And I remember meeting a producer of Saint-Emilion wines at a consumer event in London. And I was at his stand when some people came up, they tasted his wines and said, oh, I really like these wines. Where can I buy them in London? And he had to shrug his shoulders and say he didn't know because he didn't sell the wines himself. They went through the, the Place de Bordeaux, through the merchant system. And that's a major defect. Now I think there's tighter control, more exchange of information between the negociants, the merchants, and the proprietors, and that, that's a good thing. So, But that problem is still there. You don't know where your wine goes. You can sell it to a prestigious wine importer in Switzerland who promises sells it on to somebody in Hong Kong, and it's sitting on a dockside in Hong Kong getting stewed for a few weeks, and then it goes to China, and then prices go up for that particular vintage, and all the wine gets shipped back to the United States to the auction houses. So, yeah, that is a major defect of the Bordeaux system. And what we say about the press is, I mean, this is something I banged on about in the book, is we are wooed. It's a magic circle. The red carpet is rolled out for the press in Bordeaux. And it's wonderful to be on the receiving end. You, you get wonderful meals, you get poured old vintages. I mean, it's, it's hard to resist, but it can undermine your objectivity. And I think that is a real problem. You need to keep your distance, and it's very difficult to do in, in Bordeaux. And I'm, I'm very conscious of that. And for example, in my most recent book, uh, The Complete Bordeaux, I need to spend long periods of time in Bordeaux. I cannot possibly afford, on the advance I'm given for that book, to sit in a hotel for three weeks at this period, three weeks in another period. I'm dependent on the hospitality of chateaus. To be fair, I don't think they expect anything in return. They're eager to, to help, and it certainly can't hurt them. But you know, And I always declare these things in the introductions to, to the book. But... The bottom line is it's very easy to be drawn into this this world. One anecdote, if I may, in Bordeaux, it's usual if you have a program of visits, say five days in Saint-Emilion, which often happens to me, you will always be invited to lunch and sometimes to dinner as well. Not everybody wants to be invited to lunch, and you can say no. Um, I quite enjoy it because you, you can talk to people. You may taste a couple of older vintages, and it, it's fun, and I like meeting people. Uh, in Burgundy, where I also spend a lot of time, I'm there every single year since 1986, you have an appointment usually at 9 o'clock, you have an appointment at 10.30, and then at 5 to 12 is, au revoir, monsieur, merci pour votre visite. And you're slung out, <laughs> and you could be in some village where there's no restaurants, and you have to sort of rush around looking for a bar where you can grab a sandwich before your next appointment. It's a totally different wine culture. And if I may just add something at this point, this is what I really love about writing about wine, is, is wine culture. I really don't care whether I give it 93 points or 94 points. I'm not big on wine scoring anyway. None of my books include wine scores. But I just love meeting the people and just smelling the air, walking through the vineyards, looking at the soil, working out why this place is different 
from a place two miles down the road. That, for me, is interesting. I think there's nothing more boring, even though I sometimes quite often have to do it, than to be faced with a lineup of 100 wines and say, you've got to taste all of these in the morning and give them a score. We have to do that as well, because consumers want guidance. There's so much wine out there that they want to know, well, Chambon Musigny, they're the eight producers, which one shall I buy? And after that, which vineyard should I buy? And So it's complicated and people need help, and that, that's how we do it. But it's a fairly boring process. What's interesting is to be in Chambon Musigny, in the cellar, with a glass in your hand, talking to the producer who's got a pipette, wine thief in his or her hand, and taking it from there, and walking through the vineyards. But I think more than most wine writers, you often focus on process of how wine is made. Because, I mean, obviously Hugh Johnson wrote a book about it, but most people in the American wine writing genre, the Parker genre, I think focus more on the glass side, right? The points, the glass, the tasting note. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I really value about a Stephen Brook book is that you do talk about how wine is functionally made in these regions. And it's not, you know, people always think that wine is made the same way in different places, but the givens of that are not the same. They're very different, actually. It's because I'm not a winemaker. I'm not an enologist. Especially in Burgundy or Australia or California, there are all kinds of technical processes which I wanted to understand, such as is evaporation sous vide a better process for concentrating wine than reverse osmosis? I'm not an enologist. I don't know the answer, but I'm keen to get the opinions of people who are working with these techniques all the time, or were when they were in fashion, and then reporting back, as it were. Because I think it's informative, and people ought to know about how wines are not, not manipulated, but tweaked. So, you know, racking, which is, you know, taking the wine off the leaves, cleaning the barrels, putting the wine back. It was routine in Bordeaux, and in many places still is. But it's also fashionable not to rack, to leave the wines on the leaves, maybe to stir the leaves occasionally. There are all these different techniques. And for me, it's great to talk to people like the late Paul Pontalier, who was the technical director at Margot, and I would say became a, a friend. And one reason he became a friend was because he was so open. I would ask him questions like, why do you do this? Or why don't you do what your neighbors are doing? And he would come back to me and say, well, you might think we haven't thought about this, but let me tell you, we spent two years of research on this. And you know, I have three PhDs in my winemaking team, and we decided that it wasn't worth doing X or Y. And it's great to get that kind of information. And it also knocks down with some of the shibboleths. I remember being at Chateau Margaux in 2005, fabulous vintage, and the harvest was underway, and I was invited to lunch, but invited to come along a bit earlier and observe the harvest. So I, I was expecting all these sorting tables with 80 people there, you know, hand-picking stalks off the grapes. There wasn't one. There wasn't one. And all the grapes came in, not in tiny little baskets, but in great containers, and were then chucked into the uh, crusher de stemma and then into, into the tanks for fermentation. So... When I saw Paul Patelier over lunch, I said, where's the sorting table? And he, he said, we sort in the vineyard. We make sure that nothing comes into the winery that hasn't already been selected, plus we train our harvesters. So on the other hand, if it was a difficult vintage, which 05 was not, you bet we'd have a sorting table. So it's a pragmatic thing rather than the doctrinal thing. 
And there are other estates where I, f- I think show business comes into it and say, yeah, we, we pick each uh, very uh, hand by hand. And it, it's, you know, it's lovely stuff for the media, but basically it's bullshit. Your French accent is getting a lot better. It is, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> I haven't even had a glass of wine. <laughs> so what about the communication side? Because in Medoc and Grave, in that introduction, you sort of say, you know, some of these specifics are hard to nail down in Bordeaux because you send an email to someone, they don't send it back and uh, you don't always know you get contradictory information so now you're about to come out with a new book on Bordeaux a new edition and has that situation changed yeah, any it's, a, it's a lot easier because everybody has a website when the first edition of that book came out which was in 2007 a lot of people didn't even have email let alone websites so it was quite difficult to get information I mean for all the important chateaus I visited them in person so I could ask them questions but I had to give the answers that they gave me and print them in good faith. Now, I can't go around checking how much Merlot there is in the vineyard. So some of the information may not always be accurate, but all I can say is I, I've done the best I can, and it's become a lot easier for reasons I've just explained, technological reasons, uh, emails and websites and so on. Even so, you can find inconsistencies between what somebody tells you in the cellar and what they actually print on their website, you don't know, know which is correct. On the other hand, it's rarely of earth-shattering importance, whether they got 35% or 42% Merlot. So one of the favorite lines that I have from one of your books is in The Wines of California, where you say uh, one of your favorite things to do is to tell people that there's no good wine in California, and then they feel obliged to get the best bottles from their cellar for you to try, and they open them up to prove you wrong. And it was a a trick you used to drink some great wine. No, no, it's absolutely true, because in those days, I wasn't writing about wine. I interested in wine. I would rent a car and visit vineyards, that kind of thing in Napa Valley. But I was there in my role as an editor and as an academic editor, which meant I had a lot of authors or potential authors at, say, Berkeley, UCLA or wherever. So I would travel the world. And if I was in a place like uh, San Francisco, I would tease some of my authors who were very kind enough to uh, invite me to dinner. And I'd say snooty things about uh, California wines. And they would be um, clearly offended. And instead of throwing me out, which they probably should have done, they just nipped down to the cellar and brought out a you know, 74 Martha's Vineyard or something. So uh, I got to taste some very nice wines. I like them from the start. I mean, those wines. I, I, I knew I liked California wines, but to get to taste some of the great names was terrific. And I think that's a great book to refer back to. Actually, that's probably the most dog-eared book that I have of yours. For my own career, it's the one I've referred to back to the most. And I think it's because there are really good portraits of people in those profiles and what they were up to at the time. Well, because the owners were very forthcoming. You know, they made their money in whatever it was, high tech, and they bought this place on Spring Mountain. And they're really proud of it. So if somebody wanted to turn up and write about that, taste their wines, write about their wines, they... They were pleased to be there if they if they could and uh, greet you and talk about what they were were doing. So there were some you know big names I was able to meet because it was a two way thing. Um, I needed them in order to write well about what they were doing, but they also needed me in a sense to publicize what they were doing because they they weren't the only ones in Napa Valley. There were five hundred other people doing the same thing. So it was a very open place in in that sense. I was able to meet lots of those protagonists and owners, and occasionally would write portraits of them or their their quirks or uh, I mean you just don't want a book full of tasting notes do you who were some of the key figures in California that really stood out for you at the time well people like Paul Draper um, he called me in to do blending sessions just because I happened to be there at the right time and that was great fun and to have somebody with his knowledge intelligence and modesty 
he's one of my heroes on the California wine scene. Another one, um, less obvious choice perhaps to some, would be uh, Jim Clendenon, um, who forgave me for describing him as an overgrown schoolboy. Or I said he dressed like one, you know, with his long curls and his rather grubby T-shirts. I'm sure they're very clean, but they didn't always look that way. Um, but his whole Burgundian approach to uh, winemaking down in Santa Barbara, and we're talking at a time when there weren't many vineyards down there. I thought he, he was brave and committed, and he wasn't trying to produce Burgundy, and he isn't trying to produce Burgundy in uh, Santa Barbara, but he was going for restraint, and he understood Pinot, he understood Chardonnay, and as a consequence was not making some of the ridiculous choices that other people were making. So his wines were very good. He's a great personality, and... Um, he holds these daily lunches in the hangar that passes for his winery. So anybody who's passing by, or you know, whether it's a sales rep or is a visiting wine writer or former student of his, whatever, that we're all invited. And he does the cooking. And uh, he's told me the last time I was there, he said, in your honor, I'm cooking the British national dish. I said, really? He said, yes, chicken tikka masala. <laughs> so we sat down to this, this curry, which was perfectly palatable. And, you know, there are 30 bottles on the table and you help yourself to whatever looks interesting. And so I, I love that whole spirit of hospitality, of warmth, of openness, of directness, of irreverence. Uh, he has all those qualities, so I admire those hugely. Um, I always admired Randy Dunn. I went to see him many times up in uh, Howell Mountain. Again, a man of, uh, of great modesty, pretty stubborn in his uh, convictions, but the proof was in the bottle. I mean, these are wonderful wines, aged extremely well. And very opinionated, but the opinions were ones that I often shared. Uh, you know, all this talk about phenolic ripeness. And we're talking about a time when a lot of wines in Napa Valley were 16, and his tended to be around 14. And, and he described all this stuff about, you know, waiting till the pips are perfectly brown and the phenolic ripeness. He said, it's bullshit. And Basically, I agree with him. I know what people are talking about when they talk about phenolic ripeness, but I think it's been pushed much too far. You know, his wines aren't green, so he's making perfectly ripe wines at sensible alcohol levels. They're never going to be that low in California. But again, he's a sort of a hero of mine for, for keeping that sense of restraint and proportion and producing wines of fantastic sort of intensity and uh, cellaring potential. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet Joe Heights, Towards the end of his life, he must have died, I don't know, a couple of years later. He'd had this very serious stroke, but you could have a perfectly good conversation. And I hadn't met him before. And he, he was, just as he was supposed to be, he was curmudgeonly, opinionated. I put an idea or a suggestion to him, and he'd just knock it down in one sentence. And th this was great. I mean, this, again, was somebody with huge experience, been doing this for 40-plus years. And to meet these characters who were very successful as well. It wasn't that they were eccentrics with you know, good stories to tell. They were very successful at what they did. Philip Tonyi, a, a Brit who uh, was high up on Spring Mountain and making very, very serious cabernets. But he would tell me stories of making wine in California in the 1950s, which is what he was doing. He had to go and get ice from the local garage and tip it into your tanks to get the fermentation temperatures down. All of those kinds of anecdotes, he was full of that kind of thing. So a repository of California history. So I really relish that. And there were people like uh, Suha Newton, not terribly well known perhaps, but she was the wife of Peter Newton, who was the owner of Newton Vineyards, which in the 80s was making really good wines. And she was Chinese. 
And the architecture of the property was extraordinary with Chinese-style lacquered gates and just driving through it. It was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life, and I've been to quite a few. And uh, she was, I don't know, six foot tall, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> but, um, but she was making great wines. And she was interesting to talk to. She had a lot of experience. Yeah, but there are dozens of people like that who were around at the time. Because I can imagine doing a blending trials with Paul Draper or talking to Suha Newton about something like how bees can affect vineyard biodiversity, because I remember she used to speak about things like that. I could find that really helpful to developing some new thoughts and some new approaches to maybe other regions, taking something I picked up from a winemaker in California and going back to Bordeaux and saying, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it this way, but now that I see it, it's there. No, that's true. It's especially true of, say, developments in biodynamic farming, because people do it for different reasons. You know, you talk to some of the practitioners, and that, that's really interesting. I remember going to see Dominique Lafont in Burgundy, and I said to him, is it true that you're converting to biodynamic viticulture? And I was doing a profile of him for Decanter, and he looked rather sort of embarrassed and shamefaced and said, uh, yes, it is. He said, but I'd rather you didn't mention it. I said, well, why not? You know, it's nothing. I know it's a bit controversial, but lots of other people are doing it. And he says, no, no, I don't want people to think I'm doing it for publicity or to be fashionable. So there was that approach. And then there were the, um, the Crusaders. So I remember Benzinger Vineyards in Sonoma Mountain and spending time with their biodynamic consultant, a man called uh, Alan York. Great fun. Another irreverent guy, I think, from Texas. And he would talk about how, once he started implementing biodynamic practices in the vineyard, it totally transformed the quality of the wines. So he'd pull out a couple of older vintages, which were a bit dull, and then the most recent vintages, which had this vibrancy, which is what they were looking for at Benzinger. So you know, that's enormously instructive, and you can take that knowledge to other parts of the world, obviously. And so, yes, yeah, it's, there's a cross-fertilization of ideas. I think that that would be a real great benefit of your approach, being in so many different wine regions. One we haven't really spoken about much is Italy. You spent some time in mm, Italy mm. in the 80s. I imagine there were some characters. Oh, yes, uh, still are. I adore Italy. One of the things I, li I like is a tremendous social diversity. You do have the, the upper crust who are still major property owners, vineyards and forests, you name it, in, in Italy. So you may be having lunch with a Marchese, in Florence or Siena, and then an hour later, you're in what looks like a peasant's hovel, but that happens to be producing absolutely sensational wines. Whereas, say, in California, you're basically talking about very rich people, in some cases family-owned properties, but usually well-heeled people who are committed to wine and make very good wines and so on. But it's not that same diversity because you don't have that culture of wine, of people who are making wine because 20 generations ago their antecedents bought a vineyard. Um, of course, that's not always a good thing because to make wine just because your father made wine doesn't mean you're going to do it well especially if you've been waiting 35 years to take over the reins at an estate and you're full of resentment and you don't understand the changes in the market and you don't know what your importers are talking about and you end up producing wretched wines. That may not be the ideal formula. It may be much better to buy a vineyard, even for the wrong reasons that you want to increase your social standing in California circles um, or high-tech Silicon Valley circles. If you're committed to making good wine, you hire the right people and so on, it, that can often be a more satisfactory solution than just having 20 generations behind you. 
as someone who wrote a book about class, and we've already spoken about being a little bit of an outsider when you grew up, I mean, I think you would be more sensitive to those kind of social cues than maybe some other writers would in terms of wealth and status. It's just interesting. You know, it's, it's eye-opening sometimes. I'm not a peasant, and I'm not an aristocrat, obviously, but to have regular contact with people from all strata of society is something that not everybody gets to, to do, and it's really interesting because, you know, it opens the world. You wrote a really interesting book that I thought really captured some of those personal portraits called Wine People. And for me, it kind of opened the door for a different kind of wine journalism to look at it that way. And I think that book is one of the factors that influenced the development of this show, where I interview people. Yes, I mean, I was asked to do this book by uh, an American publisher living in Paris. And I'm not sure how he found me, but anyway, he did. And what he wanted was a series of portraits of people in different aspects of the wine industry. That interested me as well. So I would talk to uh, one of the top sommeliers in France who was working for Alain Ducasse in Monaco, to um, Len Evans in Australia, who was born in Wales, but then took the Australian wine world by storm and was a tremendous personality in his own right, again, a curmudgeonly guy. And uh, I went to see Piero Antinori, and the, the idea was to get a lot of diversity in there, not just to talk to winemakers, but to talk to people involved in the wine business at all kinds of different levels. How did you pick the people for that book? Because I would think it would be hard, uh, maybe easier back then, but really hard today when there's so many people globally who are interested in wine or have some involvement in the wine trade. Well, some of them were people I, I knew or had come across or who sounded interesting. I'd never met, no, I had met Lynn Evans once briefly in London, but I did that interview by phone. I did Robert Parker. I interviewed him essentially by phone. Then I wanted to get the farming into the book as well. So there's a viticulturalist who was also a master of wine called Steve Smith, who was working in uh, New Zealand in Hawke's Bay at craggy range. And he was the person who really discovered the Gimlet gravels as a growing region, which makes absolutely terrific wines these days. These were people I knew about or maybe had met, maybe one or two cases I hadn't met, like the sommelier I had, hadn't met him before. But you know, it wasn't that difficult to come up with a, a bunch of people. As you say, the wine world is full of personalities, people with different interests and specialities, and uh, people were amenable. And if I wanted to talk to them, they'd find time. I guess social strata is also a subtext of that book as well, now that we speak about it that way. When I think of having Antonori next to a viticulturalist, you know, there's a different social... Yes, yes, yeah. People come at wine from all kinds of different directions. You know, the traditional British clientele we are talking about earlier, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, they were officers' messes. They were London clubs, um, still are to a large extent. They were the Oxford and Cambridge colleges, where fine wine was on the table every night. So there's that, that sort of social dimension. And I remember writing an article back in the 80s when I was writing for the New Statesman about really the democratization of wine, about wine snobbery. And it, it upset me that wine was associated with, let's say, a conservative approach to life and indeed politics, to the establishment, let's put it that way. And you know, I was you know, fairly left-wing and... Uh, came from this sort of immigrant background, and I love wine. And I wasn't going to have anybody telling me that I was a, a snob because I happened to enjoy a good glass of vintage port or whatever it was. So I, I wrote a piece about that, how in Bologna, which had a, a communist mayor for many years, decades, and is Italy's capital of certainly of gastronomy, if not of wine, but where food and wine are valued and seen as an intrinsic part of life. And I thought it was a shame that we were so slow 
least in the UK and Britain, to have a, a similar approach. And I thought it was all to the good that wine was becoming more accessible, more democratized. I want everybody drinking wine. I mean, not everyone's going to like wine, but I, I think it's terrible if people feel inhibited from drinking wine because they think it's a snooty, class-ridden product. So you feel in a way that you're a bit of a popularizer. Like in your own view, you think of yourself as somebody who wants to make this more accessible to people. As I say, I, I'm grabbing opportunities. Where I see a, a gap in the market, I try and fill it because I think this is something worth writing about. And the wines themselves are worth knowing and, and drinking. So if you call that popularizing, I suppose it is. So when you wrote Medoc and Grove, you really focused on the left bank and there was nothing about the right bank anywhere in there. You've sort of rectified that situation with the complete Bordeaux, uh, which you've done in multiple editions now. Yeah, the idea was I would do a book on Medoc and Grave and then do another book on the right bank. And then the publisher changed their mind and decided to put the two of them into one book and call it The Complete Bordeaux, which is what happened. And I have to confess, I was always a left bank person. I liked the slight austerity of, of Medoc and Grave. I liked uh, Cabernet Sauvignon more than Merlot. Uh, and then in, when was it? 2005, I think, I was doing the research in Saint-Emilion, and it was a, a glorious vintage there. And I have to say, I fell in love with the wines. I thought, you know, the great Saint-Emilions and Pomerols, and also some of the other regions like Castillon, producing absolutely delicious wines. Um, they tended not to be as expensive, you know, Cheval Blanc and Ozone accepted as the top Medoc wines, but they were delicious, they were approachable. Um, some of them were a bit over the top and still are, but, uh, you know, my, my eyes, eyes were opened and I had to drop this prejudice of thinking that they were rather vulgar wines, because they're not. When you changed banks, did you find that you had to change approaches a little bit too? Or are there some things that really worked for you in the left bank in terms of explaining the wines that were less relevant on the right bank? Explaining the terroir is, is difficult. On the, the right bank in particular, you know, you're in Margot and it's all beautiful gravels. Okay, this sector may be more highly esteemed than another sector, but it, basically it's fairly consistent. You go over to, to Pomerol, and people talk about the plateau of Pomerol. Yes, but most vineyards of Pomerol are not on the, the plateau. The terroir at Petrus is unique. It's totally different from even the other great growths of, of Pomerol. So it, it gets complicated, and you need to spend time. I spend a lot of time walking the vineyards with the winemakers or all the owners, which I enjoy doing anyway, so it's not a, a hardship. But I feel you need to do that to understand it. I, you drive the vineyards of Latour. You've got the technical director behind the wheel saying, look, this is where we plant the Cabernet Franc. Or this. But it's different in the, uh, on the right bank, simply because of the scale. So you turned in the complete Bordeaux manuscript in September. What do you have planned uh, coming up? I have no uh, books in the pipeline. Do you think it's gotten easier or harder to sell wine books? Well, I'm sort of cutting my own throat here, but I think it's getting harder. Um, people... As I mentioned before, they may love the product, but do they want to read about it at, you know, at exhaustive length? Uh, some people, yes, they want uh, My book, Plea Bordeaux, is essentially a work of reference. Nobody goes to bed and reads through it from beginning to end. But the number of people that really crave that kind of book, I'm glad to say they're still around, but I think they're probably diminishing simply because of the rise of the internet. I mean, there are so many blogs now, some of them brilliant, an awful lot of them complete rubbish, but there they are, and free access. 
If you want to know about a particular property in Saint-Emilion, you don't need to go out and buy my book. You can just Google it and you get onto their website. And okay, it may not be totally reliable because they're sounding their own trumpet, obviously. Um, but the information is, is out there in loads of ways that it wasn't 20 years ago. So books and articles had more of a purpose. Today, they're not required in the same way. So I, you know, if, I wouldn't be surprised if I never write another wine book. Um, if a publisher is listening to uh, our conversation and would like me to write another wine book, I'd be very too happy to do so because I love writing books. But uh, that, that's not a sufficient reason for more books to be produced. So I, I, I think they're on their way out. I mean, the Wine Companion that Hugh Johnson started and I helped him complete the run of editions, they're just it was simple lack of interest. There was always a co-edition in Germany, and they weren't published in Germany, wasn't that interested, and that couldn't justify the print run, so it died a death. And we, we could see it coming. We weren't surprised. And that's going to be the case more and more. There'll be room, I suppose, for wine guides. Um, in Italy, there are at least 10 or 12 annual wine guides. It's extraordinary. But the kinds of books that I write, the more works of reference, of elucidation, of communication... Um, may, alas, be on their, their way out. I mean, I, I hope not, but... I like the book, so I'd be, find that unfortunate, too. I guess one of the things that you provide that a Chateau website doesn't is that outsider perspective and that willingness to oh, say, I think oh, it's that's, crucial. that's a little bogus. That kind of uh, tenor, you can't always get it for free. I think you, you have to be detached. It's difficult because a lot of people are, are my friends. And uh, I was asked by Decanter Magazine to profile, I think, my 10 favorite properties in Piedmont, which I did. But I had a real problem because some of them I, I've known for 30 years. I've watched their children grow up. And, um, you know, we don't go on holiday together or anything like that. But we know each other socially and visit each other and so on. And uh, so I declare that interest. But I suppose in a way I should exclude them. But if I exclude them, then I'm being dishonest, really. So there are these these conflicts, but I, I do try and stay away from the excess of some bloggers that I've traveled with who do nothing but butter up the, uh, the people who were visiting. One of the reasons I would pay for a Stephen Brook book is that I want that depth of experience, and not everyone has that, right? I want that 30 years behind that. I want the global travel, the interactions with multiple generations. I may not be the typical consumer. I don't know. Because I feel like sometimes experience is being sold cheaply these days. I feel like it's not always valued at the correct amount by the consuming audience. Yes. Obviously, with age, as time goes by, you get more experience. But I suppose the danger is you could get stuck in a bit of a, a rut. I hope I haven't done that. But I can see why publishers and also wine magazines, they need to renew themselves. They need fresh blood. And even at the expense of experience, that might be the right thing to do. I mean, it's all very well for me to rabbit on about red wines in Austria in the 1970s. And not many people will have had experience of those wines. But if you missed out on them, you really haven't lost a great deal. So yeah, experience, of course, is, is valuable. I was touring around Napa Valley in the, in the 1970s. There weren't many vineyards to visit, but I'd go up to Mayakamas and meet the, the owner, and we'd sit out on the deck and have a glass of wine together and chat. And it, it, it's fantastic to have those experiences. Is it essential? No, but it, it's certainly helpful. I, I think one's writing gains dimension, and I hope interest as a consequence. But you can't 
tell people you're not allowed to write about whatever it is, Bordeaux or California, because you haven't spent 20 years traveling around there. That's a very humble response to what I said. You could have taken it the opposite direction. Everybody started out somewhere, all of us. So um, it's not humility, it's just you know, common sense, I think. Where do you see uh, the British wine writing scene going from here? Because you mentioned a kind of change period when you first got started. So do you see something on the horizon now? I think there's fresh blood coming into it, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to be 30 years old and starting up as a wine writer. I think it'd be very, very difficult. You're kind enough to talk about my experience. And as a consequence of that experience, I've had columns in magazines throughout the world, and three or four of them have vanished in the last eight years. So even with all my experience, and I hope some reputation, I'm not able to sustain the output because there are no longer the outlets for it. But if I was unknown and starting out, it'd be far more difficult. So, you know, all power to people who have the confidence to try and invade the world that the old guys have dominated for such a long time. But I wouldn't really want to be in, the, in their shoes. But we can't stand still. We need uh, new people, new voices, new experiences, new backgrounds. It's essential. How do you think wine has been a part of your life? You have written about people's lives involved with wine, but in terms of how wine has played a part in your life, how all of these books and all of this travel has been something for you personally, this is the only chance I'll ever get to ask you that question, so I thought I would ask it. Well, I came to it very late. My family drank wine only on special occasions, when we had guests, for example, and they had a, a friend who was a fellow of an Oxford college with a renowned cellar, so he would slip them, I mean, pay for them, but uh, half a dozen bottles a year. So I'd be drinking at home things like 1953 Rieslings from the, the Rheingauer. So I was lucky, but had very limited exposure. But I was aware at an early age there was such a thing as great wine. And when I got to university, of course, there were more opportunities to drink good wine. But the real breakthrough came in my publishing career, because part of my job as academic editor was to take my authors out to lunch, to entertain them, to woo them. And I felt handicapped because although I enjoyed wine, I really didn't know that much about it. So I started I, you know, buying Michael Broadbent's vintage tasting book and Hugh Johnson's books, whatever I could get my hands on, and buying bottles that they recommended to broaden my knowledge. And I started drinking wine on a more regular basis and enjoying it more and more and buying wines for my own Cellar. I wasn't really a seller in those days, but you know, wines to put away for a few years and then bring them out later with friends and see how they developed or whatever. That's really how I got into wine. And, and then again, with, with traveling, again, connected to work, we we're talking about my ruse in California, persuading people to open fine bottles for me. You know, wine was becoming more and more important, not just catching bottles of other people, but opening myself to what was the best of various parts of the world. So, uh, I mean, it's never dominated my life. I've done lots of other things. And if you told me I could never drink another bottle of wine, I would be sad, but not totally gutted. So try and keep things in, in proportion. But I tried to explain already this cultural dimension that I find so fascinating about wine, that it's not just something in the glass to knock back with your pizza or whatever, even though that's very pleasurable in itself. There's more to it than that feels like in some ways you've sacrificed a little bit for it. You haven't made tons and tons of money. 
you've had uh, amazing experiences traveling the world, but you don't have kids. You know, I don't mean to be uh, critical. No, no, no. I'm just no. curious. No, I, I don't feel that being a wine writer has been a sacrifice of, of any kind. I've still done other things. I've written lots of books that are totally unrelated to wine. I travel around India with my, my wife, or used to, on frequent occasions. In those days, there was no wine at all. You drank beer if you drank anything at all. So it doesn't dominate my life, but it's enhanced my life. And I don't see why I should relinquish it. But I'm not a wine obsessive. And when I entertain at home, when we entertain at home, I do try to avoid having nothing but wine people around the table because it can be very boring. I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody saying, you know what I drank last week? And then they take out their phone and they show you the photograph of, of a label. And, you know, I don't want wine to take over my life in that sense. I want it to be integrated into it, but not to overpower it. it it's a part of many things. That, uh, I love opera. I met my wife at the opera. Uh, I love traveling. I love architecture. We, we go and look at English parish churches at a weekend. So there are loads of other things that give enormous pleasure. And I want to be able to pursue those as well. But it doesn't mean I have to give up a good bottle of wine. Everyone has to start with wine somewhere. And we're all very lucky that Stephen Brooks started with wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Great pleasure. Thank you. Stephen Brook is a prolific author of many wine books and other uh, books of literature and also social study. And he's a contributing editor for Decanter magazine. He's based in London and he will hopefully write another wine book. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Northern Lands, the great Canadian wine and culinary adventure, Canada's largest all-Canadian wine and culinary festival held biannually in Edmonton, Alberta.